all set. Thank you. If you need the water, okay. Uh, thank you for that uh, for that kind introduction and the opportunity to to speak here this morning. I've been speaking on on college campuses for a long time, but I don't take these invitations for granted anymore. Um, given the climate on some campuses today, uh, you can't. Uh, some of you might know that the University of Chicago now sends out a letter to incoming freshmen that explains the school's commitment to academic freedom and how they do not support trigger warnings and, stays, and safe spaces and disinvite uh, speakers or cancel invited speakers uh, because their topics might prove controversial. Uh, that used to go without saying on college campuses. Uh, now it needs to be stated explicitly in a letter to incoming freshmen, which says something about where we are today. Uh, college ought to be a place where students are exposed to different points of view, uh, where their sensibilities are challenged, where they learn to grapple with alternative perspectives and come up with coherent responses to those perspectives. Uh, on a lot of campuses, that's not happening today to the extent that it should be happening. Um, on a lot of campuses, students are being taught what to think instead of how to think. Um, so it's good to know that places like Oklahoma, Wesleyan University continue to challenge students to think outside of their comfort zones, and I'm very grateful, grateful to be here. Uh, I thought I'd spend a few minutes talking about inequality in America today, particularly racial inequality and the role that politics and public policymakers play in addressing inequality. It's a topic that seems to be on the minds of a lot of people today, including some presidential candidates who call for slavery reparations to, for blacks to address these inequities. It's also a theme that I explored in False Black Power, my most recent book which started out as a column and then grew into a somewhat longer essay and ultimately uh, a short book. But I wrote it shortly after President Obama left office. And my intention was to make a fairly simple point, which is that President Obama needed black voters much more than blacks needed him. And now before all the Obama supporters out there jump down my throat, let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, what I mean is that political activity is not the most effective method of advancing a group economically. Uh, a racial or ethnic group's political success does not automatically translate into economic progress or lead to economic progress. One does not flow naturally from the other. It's hardly an original observation, but it's an important one that I think is regularly ignored or overlooked by civil rights activists and others who practice what's sometimes called identity politics. Uh, that is urging uh, blacks and other minorities to vote as a block to favor candidates of their own racial or ethnic background and so forth. And I thought the end of the Obama presidency was an especially good time to re-examine this strategy, uh, which has been in place for more than a half century now. Uh, since the late 1960s, Black leaders have really prioritized the integration of political institutions uh, with the goal of closing many of the racial gaps that we see today. 
And in terms of electing more blacks to office, they've been tremendously successful. Uh, by the early 1980s, major U.S. cities with large black populations, your, your Clevelands, your Detroits, your Chicago's, your Washington D.C.'s, your Philadelphia's, and so forth, had all elected black mayors. Uh, since 1970, the number of black elected officials in this country grew from fewer than 1,500 uh, to more than 10,000, including, of course, a twice-elected black president. In addition, we saw a proliferation of black superintendents and city council members and state legislatures. Uh, uh, gerrymandered voting districts ensured the election of blacks to Congress, and so forth. The problem is that all this political clout never really paid off economically for the black poor, which is what we were told would happen. You look at how the black underclass fared in those black-run cities. Uh, Coleman Young's Detroit in the 1970s, Marion Barry's Washington, D.C. in the 1980s, uh, Sharp James's Newark, New Jersey in the 1990s. These black mayors created these unbeatable political machines in the name of helping the black poor. Yet the poor became even more impoverished on their watch. Mississippi has long boasted more black elected officials than any other state in the nation, yet it continues to have one of the highest black poverty rates in the nation. Or you could look at case studies in places like Atlanta in the 1970s and 80s, where under black mayors, the city implemented racial preference policies for hiring black workers or black city contractors. Uh, under these policies, blacks who were already better off, like business owners, did quite well. But average income blacks were left behind, and the black poor actually lost ground. And that's been the story nationwide. In an era of increasing black political clout, not to mention affirmative action and set-aside programs, the black underclass has lost ground, both in absolute terms and relative to the white underclass. So in an era, uh, you know, in the, in the 70s and the 1980s, even well into the 1990s, uh, the poorest blacks saw their incomes fall at double the rate of comparable whites in this country. So in an era of unprecedented growth in black elected officials, and not to mention affirmative action and so forth, uh, the black poor have regressed. Uh, their situation has actually worsened. Now, of course, there have been gains made by blacks over the decades. On balance, blacks are certainly better off than they were a half century ago. But the track record regarding the black poor is appalling. And it's clear that government programs, whether they're implemented by black or white politicians, aren't the solution to many of these problems that blacks face. It's clear that these great society government programs of the 1960s may have been well-intentioned, but they aren't getting the job done in terms of reducing racial inequities that everyone complains about and wants to see narrow. So what's going on here? The short answer, judging from history, is that blacks ultimately must help themselves. These problems aren't necessarily political, and they won't necessarily lend themselves to political solutions, regardless of the color of the politician or public policymaker implementing them. Ultimately, blacks will have to do what other groups have done, and that is develop what economists refer to as human capital. Those are attitudes, habits, behaviors, human capital, 
that other groups developed in order to rise in America. And to the extent that a government program, however well-intentioned, interferes with this necessary self-development, it risks doing more harm than good. Uh, history shows that there simply aren't any shortcuts in the development of this human capital. Open-ended welfare benefits do not help people develop a work ethic, which is what ultimately they must develop in order to rise out of poverty and stay out of poverty. Uh, soft on crime laws are going to make ghettos more dangerous for the mostly law-abiding residents who live there and make life easier for the criminals, who of course primarily prey on the black poor. Racial preferences and college admissions mismatch students with schools, which results in lower black graduation rates and fewer black professionals than we would have in the absence of these policies, and so on. Yet these policies have been pushed to help narrow inequality in America. In practice, they're exacerbating it. Now this history, I think, should have tempered expectations for the first black president. Now, without taking anything away from Barack Obama's historic accomplishment, or the country's widespread sense of pride in the racial progress that his election symbolized. The reality is that there was little reason to believe that a black president was the answer to racial inequities or the problems of the black poor. Nor is there any reason to believe that another black president in the future will be the solution to these problems. Under Obama, black-white gaps in household incomes and poverty and home ownership and other measures all widened. The job situation for blacks did improve toward the end of his second term, uh, but blacks did not see their average unemployment rate fall below double digits until the third term of Obama's seventh year in office. So now we have more evidence that the proliferation of black politicians in recent decades has done little to narrow racial gaps in employment, income, home ownership, academic achievement, or other areas. Now, this is not to say that blacks should not run for office or engage politically in our system. I'm not, I'm not saying that. What I'm questioning is whether gaining political influence should continue to play such a central role in efforts to help blacks advance and in efforts to narrow these gaps, these racial gaps that we see in the country. Nor am I suggesting that the Obama presidency necessarily caused these gaps to widen. I'm not making a, a causal connection here. History also shows that racial inequity has widened under white mayors and white governors and white presidents over the decades. What I'm suggesting is that the belief that a black president would make a huge difference in racial inequality was misplaced. What I'm suggesting is that economic advancement and political advancement are two very different things, and that any serious discussion of inequality in this country must include a discussion of differences in cultural behavior. Prior to the 1960s, in the first half of the 20th century, when blacks were more focused on developing this human capital, we saw racial gaps narrowing in income, academic achievement, in black representation in middle-class professions, and elsewhere. Blacks were not only making gains in absolute terms, again, they were gaining 
on whites, racial gaps narrowing. But following these government interventions in the 1960s and the black leadership's shift to a focus on electing more black officials and attaining more political power, that previous progress slowed down, stalled, and in some cases even reversed course. Let me offer some examples of this. For the first half of the 20th century and well into the 1950s, black marriage rates in the US were either similar to white marriage rates or exceeded them. In the 1940s and 50s, black labor participation rates exceeded those of whites. Black incomes grew at much faster rates than white incomes. And the black poverty rate fell by 40 percentage points. Between 1940 and 1970, so we're talking during the era of Jim Crow and before affirmative action programs were implemented, the number of blacks in middle class professions, accountants, engineers, teachers, social workers, and lawyers, the number of blacks in these professions quadrupled. Between 1960 and 1970, black incomes in America doubled. Now they grew during that period for whites as well, but not nearly as fast as they grew for blacks. In other words, during this period, racial gaps were not just narrowing, but in some cases narrowing quite rapidly. Steady progress was being made. It was being made during a time of rampant racism. It was being made during a time when blacks had very little political clout in this country. Blacks were making progress, I'd argue, because the focus was on developing this human capital, which is far more important than electing black officials. As I said earlier, Obama needed black voters to win the White House, but the idea that black Americans need a black president to prosper in this country is not something supported by the historical record. I think that what's too often missing from most of our discussions today about this inequality, whether we're talking about employment or education, and incarceration, income, or other measures, is the role, the crucial role that culture plays. Discussing antisocial behavior in poor black communities and suggesting that such behavior plays a significant role in racial inequality has become almost taboo. A few years ago, I wrote a column for the Wall Street Journal on the prevalence of violent crime in poor black neighborhoods. And in the column, I used a quote from Martin Luther King, who once told a black congregation, do you know that Negroes are 10% of the population in St. Louis and responsible for 58% of the crimes? King said, we've got to face that. We've got to do something about our moral standards. He said, we know that there are many things wrong in the white world. But there are many things wrong in the black world, too. We can't keep on blaming the white man. There are things we must do for ourselves. Now, after the column ran, a number of readers contacted the paper and accused me of making up the quote, which comes from a 1961 profile of King written by the famous black author James Baldwin in Harper's Magazine. Now, I was a little surprised by this reaction because all you have to do in this day and age is Google the quote to find out whether or not it's correct and to find out the source. But what really struck me about the accusation is that those making it apparently just couldn't believe that the nation's 
most prominent civil rights leaders used to speak this way about problems in the black community and the role of personal responsibility. Now, King was obviously a uniquely gifted and capable leader, and I'm not suggesting that blacks today need another Martin Luther King. They don't. What I'm suggesting is that King represented a type of leadership, a type of thinking, a good faith approach to closing racial divisions that politicians and social activists today barely even pay lip service to. King and his generation of leaders believed that whites obviously had a role to play in changing a fundamentally racist system. But they also understood that blacks had a role to play and they were willing to hold blacks accountable despite the white racism, the legal and rampant white racism that existed at the time. They operated under the belief and tried to instill in young people the belief that blacks must succeed notwithstanding these racial barriers, that blacks can't sit, in, sit around waiting for whites to get their act together first, that there's no time for that. By contrast, many activists and politicians today who express concern about the plight of the black underclass spend much more time making excuses for the kind of antisocial behavior that prominent black leaders of the King era regularly condemned. Young black kids are sent out into the world with a chip on their shoulders today. They're told the cops are gunning for them. Their teachers are racist, the tests are racist, the employers are racist, that the judges, prosecutors, and the entire criminal justice system is stacked against them. They're told that the world owes them, and that if they don't succeed, it's not really their fault. So at a time when young blacks today are far more likely to experience racial preferences than racial prejudice, at a time when you have a generation of blacks who came of age with a twice-elected black president, we have people in positions of influence and authority insisting that blacks cannot be held in any way responsible for these persistent racial gaps until white racism has been essentially vanquished from America. In many cases, you're dealing with black leaders and activists who consider any focus on black responsibility and accountability to be itself a form of racism and the academic and political and media establishment, for the most part, plays right along. The discussion of race and crime in today is a perfect example of this phenomenon. In the media, on college campuses, among civil rights activists, and political figures, even in the world of sports, a fundamentally dishonest narrative has taken hold. The press, my profession, is very eager to break down police shootings by race, but hesitant to break down criminal behavior by race, which gives the public a distorted picture of what's actually happening. Study after study, going back decades, has shown that blacks are arrested and incarcerated at higher rates than whites based on behavior. Now, that doesn't mean there are no racist cops out there, or no cops who are abusing their authority, but it's clear that racism in and of itself is an inadequate explanation for higher rates of arrest and incarceration among blacks. 
Now, there's no complete national database on police shootings. Some police departments report more extensive data than others. And perhaps some uniform system should be put in place. I certainly would have no objection to that. But the data we do have show that in a typical year, police are involved in approximately 2 or 3% of black shooting deaths in this country. In the first half of 2016, for example, there were about 2,100 shootings in Chicago. Out of those 2,100 shootings, nine, nine involved police. Of course, over the course of the entire year, there were more than 4,300 shootings in Chicago. Almost all of the shooting victims were black, and 99.5% of the shootings were carried out by civilians, not cops. During one weekend in Chicago last year, 74 people were shot. One of the local hospital emergency rooms had to shut down because there was no more room for all the bodies. Again, none of these shootings involved cops. Young black men in Chicago and other large inner cities may indeed leave their house each morning, worried about getting shot, but not by police. But you'd never know that by following the media coverage. Back in New York City, where I'm based, we have the nation's largest population and largest police force. And it so happens that the New York City Police Department has kept detailed records of police shootings going all the way back to 1971, when police shot 314 people. 91 of them fatally. Two decades later, the number of police shootings in New York had fallen from 314 to 108, and fatalities had fallen from 93 to 27. The most recent number available for New York City is from 2017. That year, New York City police shot 19 people. 10 of them fatally. It's the lowest number on record. So we're talking about a roughly 90% reduction in police shootings and police shooting fatalities in the nation's largest city with the nation's largest police force over the past four and a half decades. And New York is no outlier here. Police shootings have fallen dramatically nationwide in other major cities over the past half century. In 2017, police in Los Angeles, the nation's second largest city, shot 15 people. And police in Chicago, our third largest city, shot 25 people, which represents less than 1% of all shootings in Chicago that year. Meanwhile, we have social activists claiming that police shootings are not only rising, but rising to epidemic proportions. This is just one of many examples of how a prevailing narrative can be almost completely at odds with the actual empirical data available. But if we want to begin to do something about racial inequities, we need to be honest with ourselves. We need to correct the false narratives that so often drive the discussion. According to federal figures, police shootings of black people have fallen by more than 70% nationwide since 1970. 
This idea of trigger-happy cops out there gunning for young black men based on everything we know is a myth. Yet you have entire movements today advancing this narrative and the media expressing next to no skepticism. We have pro-athletes refusing to stand for the national anthem in protest of police treatment of young black men. They think there's some epidemic going on out there. It's a narrative that's gained tremendous currency based on anecdotal evidence, social media videos that have gone viral, but no empirical data supports this narrative. We've reached a point, it seems, where the facts simply don't matter. All that matters is controlling the narrative. The media would have you believe that the main problem in our inner cities is policing, which is frankly insane. The sad reality is that blacks are only about 13% of the population in this country, but commit more than half of all murders in this country. Roughly 7,000 blacks are murdered each year, and 90% of them are killed by their peers. There's your epidemic. In New York, which is one of the safer big cities in the US, blacks are about 23% of the population, but commit 75% of all shootings and 70% of all robberies. Whites are 34% of New York's population, but commit less than 2% of the shootings. And this isn't a New York phenomenon. You'll find similar numbers in Detroit, Cleveland, Oakland, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and other large cities. In fact, homicide is the leading cause of death in America for young black men. Homicide. And again, it's not because cops are killing them. Bad cops should be called out and punished. And I think the activists are performing a public service when they call attention to police misconduct. The problem is the overemphasis on police behavior. If you believe that these lives really matter, if you want to reduce that black body count, just as a practical matter, should your main focus be the 2% of black shooting deaths that involve cops or the 98% that don't? This national discussion about race and crime is important because the violence that is so prevalent in these neighborhoods has enormous social and economic consequences as well. The common assumption is that poverty leads to crime. The truth is closer to the reverse. Businesses flee crime-ridden neighborhoods. Property values fall. Jobs follow those businesses out of those communities. One reason that blacks were progressing at much faster rates in the first half of the 20th century, when black political power was minimal and racism was legal and widespread, is that black communities back then were much less violent than they are today. I think it's also important to note that the level of social pathology that we see in black ghettos today is not normal. Things have not always been this bad. Here's William Julius Wilson, the black sociologist, describing Harlem and other poor black neighborhoods in the 1940s and 1950s. Wilson writes that despite the high rate black poverty, 
in these neighborhoods throughout the first half of the 20th century. The rates of inner city joblessness, teenage pregnancy, out of wedlock births, female headed families, welfare dependency, and serious crime were significantly lower than in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and did not reach catastrophic proportions until the mid-1970s. He writes that there was crime, but it did not reach the point where people were fearful of walking the streets at night. There was joblessness, but it was nowhere near the unemployment rates we would see in ghetto communities beginning in the 1970s. There were single-parent families, but they were a small minority of all black families, intended to be headed not by unwed teenagers, but by middle-aged women and usually, who were usually widowed or divorced. There were welfare recipients, but a very small percentage of families could be described as welfare dependent. In short, he says, unlike the present period, inner-city neighborhoods prior to 1960 exhibited a sense of community and explicit norms and sanctions against aberrant behavior. Now, what Wilson is describing here leads to a very unsettling conclusion, which is that blacks living under Jim Crow conditions and only a couple generations removed from slavery had more stable families and lived in safer communities than blacks living under a twice-elected black president. I'll close by saying this. Most sensible people agree that racial prejudice not only still exists in this country, but can impact a group's progress, that it does have an effect on exacerbating the racial inequality that we see today. The relevant question, however, is to what extent does racism explain these racial gaps? The gaps we see in poverty, employment, crime, education, and so forth. And to what extent do other factors explain them? I don't think our politicians and policymakers spend enough time considering non-racial factors, and that's the problem. Downplaying group behavioral differences or shielding people from any responsibility for their situation may seem like the charitable thing to do in light of all the atrocities that blacks have endured in the United States. But the relevant question is whether it's helpful. More than anything else, the black underclass needs the human capital, the values, the habits, the attitudes, the behaviors that facilitate economic advancement, regardless of who gets elected. A previous generation of black leaders understood this, and unprecedented black advancement was the result. Let's hope this history informs our current debates about inequality in America. Thank you very much.